Will you please rise for the reading of today's scripture? Today's scripture is from the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this land. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, Jackie, thank you for reading our lesson this morning, and peace to all of you in the name of Christ. We're grateful to this marvelous orchestra. We look forward to the music from the choir. Jonathan, thank you for your prayer this morning, and uh, Jackie for reading. And Ellen, we're so grateful to you and to our children's ministry, to all of our volunteers, uh, and to our staff who do such great work in spiritual formation uh, with our kids. I don't know a greater privilege than for the church to share the Word of God, the Scriptures, with our children. And I think, what, 250, maybe 300 Bibles today uh, will be shared between preschoolers, third graders, confirmands, and adults. And I want to say, especially uh, to our students, that our prayer is that you'll not only receive the Bible, but that you'll actually read it, and that you'll read a few verses every day and that you'll train your parents to do the same thing. Uh, And grandparents, that would be a marvelous, marvelous thing. We're right in the middle of our series on deliverance. We're about to make the turn. We're in week five. We have six weeks left to go. And this morning, the text, Jackie, that you read from Exodus 6 contains a word of assurance given to Moses, a shepherd who's struggling. I don't know about you, but, but I need some assurance today. We're living in a landscape where we're desperately in need of reassurance, especially in 2022. I, I think of issues of salvation and sanctification as, as not a one-and-done deal. It's an ongoing process. Of course, salvation begins when we accept grace. There is provenient grace, of course, available in infant baptism, but converting grace happens at the moment that you receive for yourself the grace of God, but then comes sanctification, and that's growing up in grace. Uh, that, that's ongoing grace. 
But we've discovered, you've discovered that sanctification, this ongoing sort of grace, is often two steps forward and one step back. In other words, I used to think that life and faith were sort of linear, but that's not true. Uh, Faith is not the, the shortest line between two points. It's squiggly. Or or as one of my favorite bishops likes to say, it's kind of wonky, to be honest with you. And so consequently, in the midst of our walk with God, we need some assurance. We need reminders. We need people around us. We need scripture. We need accountability and community that reassure us. Some of you know the name Tim Keller. Uh, He's a Reformed theologian out of Manhattan. Some of you have read some of his books, and they're worth reading. One of the things that he says that strikes a chord with me is this. The basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. That's reassurance. After the burning bush scene that we talked about a few weeks ago, where Moses accepts God's call to speak truth to power, things for Moses actually got worse before they got better. I don't know, but I I expect that Moses may have thought that there would be an instantaneous result to his obedience to God. Uh, We sometimes think that, but it doesn't always work that way because overcoming sin and oppression is a struggle even for God. Evil doesn't give up without a fight. And God doesn't have a magic wand. This is not Potter world where a magic wand can make it all go away. That's not how God rolls. The pathway from sin to salvation, from captivity to promise, often passes through many a Gethsemane, if you know what I mean. And when I was a younger pastor, I used to think that obedience to God was immediately rewarded in calculable, measurable ways, but it's not necessarily so. In fact, I've discovered that quite the contrary, obedience to God often gets you in trouble with the world. Obedience to the call of God oftentimes gets us in hot water, and I've also discovered that obedience is seldom convenient, and it's often risky, and it was for Moses. So when Moses accepted his call, what does he do? He marches up to the palace to do God's bidding, and it didn't go well. And the thing is, Moses did exactly as God commanded. He went up the steps to Pharaoh's palace and said, let my people go that we may worship him, thus saith the Lord. And the king replied, no, let your people stay, thus saith the Pharaoh. And from that moment, it's a battle between two wills. It's a contest between good and evil. It's a battle between light and darkness. I'm reminded of Paul's word to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, look, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic forces of this present darkness. It is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Evil starts 
when we begin to treat people as things. And so it was with Pharaoh. I don't know about you, but every now and then, sometimes it seems as though evil is getting an upper hand. Sometimes. I don't think I'm the only one here this morning that was shocked and dismayed by the senseless acts of violence in Memphis. I haven't been able to get my mind off of a 34-year-old mother, Eliza Fletcher, who while running early in the morning, maybe even having her devotion, listening to a podcast, is abducted and killed. I can't get her off my mind. This woman who, at her funeral, they said she was a light and joy to her family and community. I can't get my mind off, off of four people later in the week who were randomly shot and killed by a smiling teenager who was live streaming the whole thing. Evil is real, and that kind of, that kind of violence is pure and adulterated evil. And sometimes it, it just feels like evil may be getting the upper hand. But of course it isn't. There is no force greater in this world than love. Love always gets the last word. There's a verse that's a life verse for me that I found very uh, assuring, reassuring in recent days. It's 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in me, in you, than he that is in the world. But sometimes it can get a little worse before it gets better. And this is exactly what happened to Moses. When Moses confronts Pharaoh, his request is flatly denied, and things go from bad to worse. Consequently, because of their meeting, Pharaoh tightens the screws on the Jews, and he doubles their workload. And the Hebrew elders, as you can imagine, decide to have a little come to Jesus with Moses. And they say something like this, where is our deliverance that you promised? Your rendezvous, your meeting with Pharaoh only served to make him meaner. And this often happens in any organization, including the church, that the people blame Moses. And what does Moses do? <laughs> he blames God. You see this in Exodus 5, 21 through 23. This is, this is the preface to what we read in chapter 6. Just prior to the text that we read, the elders, the Hebrew elders, turn on Moses and Aaron. And this is what they say, let the Lord see and judge what you've done. You have made us stink in the opinion of Pharaoh and his servants. You've given them every reason to kill us. And then Moses turns on God. I love this. My Lord, why have you abused your own people? Why, and why did you send me? That's at the core of his issue. Ever since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has abused this people. And watch this. And you have done absolutely nothing to rescue your people. Now, that is no way to speak to God, if you ask me. If I'd have been a scribe transcribing the Scripture, copying the Scripture, I think I would have deleted verse 23 at this point. I would have been afraid of lightning coming out of the clouds and striking me. But what is going on with Moses? 
It's the pain talking. It's obedience without results talking. And sometimes in the heat of some difficult commission, things do get a little worse before they get better. They did for Jesus. One of the seven last words of Jesus on Good Friday hanging on the cross is, why me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the pain talking. And it's a form of prayer. We have a name for it. It's lamentations, lamenting, and God allows it, and God understands it. Now, this isn't in the Scripture, the next thing I'm going to say, but this is the Revised Chapel version, so take it for what it's worth. I think that when Moses, when the anger is talking, that Moses is probably thinking to himself, I never should have accepted that call. I never should have turned aside at Horeb. I should have kept my sandals on in the face of that bushfire. Have you ever had a day like that? Where you sort of reconsidered your call, your faith? Uh, I read recently, maybe you saw it, a statistic this week that said that in the last two years, during the pandemic and all the political divisions and the protocols and the masking, in the last two years, 42% of pastors thought about quitting. Now, frankly, uh, Jonathan, I think that's a little low. I think somebody's lying because I think it was a little more than that. And to be honest with you, I've had a handful of times in 40 years that I've thought about dropping out, and I always refer to those as want ads Mondays. Have you ever had those? Where, where you just sort of think about what you, what you might have done. I'm sure some of you have thought about that for me as well. I, maybe I should have been a psychologist or maybe a college professor or maybe, maybe a park ranger. I mean, Radner every day. Can you imagine that? Did I ever mention Radner? Um, maybe join the circus. In one church, I thought I had. Moses thought about backing out. Maybe he should have stayed in Midian. Maybe he should have stayed with the shepherds. Maybe he should have sold used camels. But he couldn't get away from his call. And neither can I. And neither can you. This is our family. There are some things that you just can't not do. I apologize to the English teachers among us. I used a double negative, but there are some things you can't not do. It's the pain talking, and I get it, and God understands it. In fact, you see it again. It's, <laughs> this is really raw. In Numbers 11, after the deliverance of the Hebrew people through the Red Sea, they're about three days into the wilderness out of Egypt when the groaning starts, the griping. And it's always about the food, right? It's about the manna. And the people are sick and tired of manna. They have eaten it in every conceivable manner. They've boiled it, broiled it, grilled it, blackened it, sauteed it, fried it. And they're giving Moses the business now. And Moses then cries out to God, verse 14, I cannot bear these people on my own. They're too heavy for me. Lord, if you're going to treat me like this, just kill me now. You ever said that? I, I used to hear mothers of preschoolers say that to their spouses. Just kill me now. 
If I have found favor in your eyes, then don't make me endure any more of this. Somebody needs a hug. (laughs) Somebody needs some assurance. I noticed something in this passage this week that I had never seen before. One of the reasons that Moses initially refused to obey God's call to deliver the people, you remember he had five excuses. One of the original reasons that he would not heed God's call was because he was afraid that people wouldn't listen to him. And that was a legitimate fear because they didn't at first. But it wasn't because he was slow of speech, as he thought. It wasn't because he stuttered. It wasn't because he was untalented. Exodus 6, 9 says, they wouldn't listen to Moses because of a broken spirit. Sometimes it's hard to hear when your spirit is broken. Sometimes it's hard to trust when you're hurting. We need some assurance that God is up to something, that God is in the pain, that God is not absent, God is not unaware, God is not do-nothing, God is not unable in the face of evil, love triumphs. Deliverance delayed doesn't mean he's not coming. It was Soren Kierkegaard who said, God is imprisoned in his own resolve. In other words, God doesn't make promises that he cannot keep. But sheep need assurance, and so do shepherds. And in Exodus 6, Moses gets it. God restates a promise that he's already stated before, and he will again. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For compelled by my strong hand, he will release them, and by my strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. That's called assurance. And God repeats his promise again and again and again and again until it happens. God is imprisoned in his own resolve. That's why we keep preaching. That's why we keep teaching. That's why we keep worshiping. That's why we keep loving, believing, trusting, so that eventually broken spirits will hear and come to life again by a mighty hand. Let me finish with two words. College football is back. Um, All of a sudden, every man in the room tuned in. We've moved from the Bible to football. Um, My team was undefeated until Wake Forest came into town. 2-0 is a big deal for Vanderbilt. Uh, was Was it Marshall that beat Notre Dame yesterday? The Catholics need to confess. I mean, this is bad. Appalachian State beating A&M. These things don't happen, uh, but it's back. And UT won a close game last night in overtime. It was everybody happy about that. I was watching a clip on ESPN of an interview with Mike Norvell. Do you know Mike Norvell? He used to be the coach at Memphis, and now he's the coach at Florida State. And 
Apparently, a week ago yesterday, Florida State beat LSU. Anytime LSU wins, that's a good day for me. So Florida State beats LSU by one point. The extra point is blocked. Florida State wins the game. Interview with Mike Norvell. How did you do it? What is your secret? How did your team manage it? And he said, well, I don't really know. Um, We've been telling our players these last few weeks to trust their training. Whatever happens, he said, whether they get a first down, score the touchdown, fumble the ball, whatever, get a penalty, it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond to that that counts. So we've been training them to trust their training. And I thought to Mount, I need to share that with my church. That's good advice. Of course, it presumes that we are training, (laughs) that we are studying Scripture, that we are in worship, that we are being faithful by prayers, presence, gifts, service, that we are practicing. Trust your training and trust your trainer. And when you do, I think that we might actually find that obedience is its own reward and that we will experience the assurance of Christ. I lost my trainer this week. We kind of lost a trainer. We, know, we didn't lose him. We know exactly where Bishop Spain is. That he's spending his first Sabbath day in the fullness of God's grace. But I kind of felt Friday like lost my trainer. I, I haven't had feelings quite like that, and you haven't either maybe since since I lost my father 18 years ago this coming Wednesday. And so I I had those same feelings and tried to be strong. And then you get in the car and you lose it. And it it was a tough day for Sybil and Molly and their family. And, And for you, I found myself calling some of you in the church because I knew you were hurting. And I I knew we had that in, in common and pain needs to be shared. In these last couple of years, maybe you saw it too, whenever we would visit Bob and Sybil in their home, uh, Bob had a stack of books beside his chair that he he was always reading. He was always studying. The man's 96 years old. And one day I said, Bob, I know what you're doing. He said, what? I said, you're cramming for your finals. (laughs) You're 96 years old. You can take a break now. And he said, I'm still training. I saw him on Wednesday at the hospital, and before I left, I said, "Um, Bishop, is there anything that we can do for you? Is there anything I can do for you? And and he smiled, and he said, yes, beg the Lord to let me in. (laughs) And I said, there won't be any need for any begging. Gates will be open wide. Those arms will be open wide. And Friday morning, my trainer, our trainer, made his entrance. A man who I think was about as close to Jesus as anybody I've ever known. And he never stopped training. In fact, his life and witness is an assurance, is an affirmation of the gospel that he preached and lived for nearly a century. And his DNA is on our hearts. 
And I believe that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jochebed and Miriam and Moses and Bob and Sybil wants us to be an affirmation too. So trust your training and get with it. In Jesus' name.